Those things being said, want to now turn our attention to today's scripture reading. It's just one verse, and so I will take it. And it is Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So, the golden rule, it's a broadly accepted, almost universally accepted rule. You don't have to be inside of Christianity or a part of Christianity in order to um, have access to the golden rule or even to value it. Uh, Confucius said the same thing that Jesus just said in Matthew 7, 12, except with, with a little bit of a twist. He said it a little bit more in the negative. When he said, do not do to others what you would not wish done to yourself. The Stoics uh, had an almost identical expression of the rule. The Apocrypha says, do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. And then Rabbi Hillel, a Jewish rabbi from around 20 uh, BC, said, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law, all the rest is only commentary. Even people with no religious affiliation have expressed appreciation of the golden rule. A person with no religious affiliation might say, I'm not a religious person, but for me, what it really boils down to is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. Now, on on the one hand, this universal popularity of the golden rule confirms something that Ecclesiastes said centuries ago, and that is that God has put eternity in the human heart. There's certain things that resonate with, with all human beings because we're created in God's image, and this is what God is like. God is a giver. God is a servant. And so, so it resonates, just like it resonates on some visceral level. When we hear the words of Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. On the other hand, we are delusional if we think that we come even close to keeping the golden rule. We are delusional if if we truly think that we are equally invested mentally, emotionally, volitionally, and monetarily in the benefit of others as we are for our own benefit. John Stott, the um, Anglican pastor and commentator said that the natural human heart is organized not around loving our neighbor as ourselves, but around self-advancement. We are all Darwinists at heart. Survival of the fittest. Look out for number one. The strong eat the weak. And so, this being the true state of things, what are we supposed to do with the golden rule? So, I'm going to try to answer that question under three headings. First, we have to take an honest look at ourselves, and then we have to take a hard look at the rule, and then we have to take a humble look at the rule keeper. So, taking an honest look at ourselves. The Apostle Paul put it this way, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but think of yourself with sober judgment. 
know, the first step toward obeying anything in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the context, it's the setting for the golden rule. The, the, the first step toward obeying any part of the Sermon on the Mount, including the golden rule itself, is owning up to the realization that you don't and you can't. You don't and you can't, and therefore you won't. See, what sets Jesus' expression of the rule apart from expressions that we get from Confucius and Rabbi Hillel and the Stoics and so on is that, and you may have noticed this, all of these other expressions were stated in the negative. Confucius, do not do to others what you wouldn't wish done to yourself. The Apocrypha, do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. Rabbi Hillel, what is hateful to you, do not do it to anyone else, and so on. But Jesus, on the other hand, states it in the positive. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. I'll get back to that in a second. But what sets him apart also, and we have the Sermon on the Mount and its context to thank for this, is that Jesus is about motive just as much as he is about behavior. It's not only what you do to or for other people, it's why you do it. And if there is a major theme of the Sermon on the Mount, it is that there is such a thing as fake virtue, as ulterior motives driving that which appears good and virtuous from an optics perspective. It's what drove Isaiah to say even our best works are, are, are like filthy rags, or, or to say of his own prophet's lips, my lips are unclean. We have mixed motives. We're duplicitous people even at our best. You know, Jesus raises the bar so high on, on law-keeping. You know, He says, if you hate somebody in your heart, you, it's as if you've murdered them. If you lust after somebody in your heart, it's as if you have gotten into bed with them. And then He talks about almsgiving, you know, giving to those in need and to the poor and to kingdom causes. And He talks about fasting, which is a spiritual discipline. And He says, so many do these things, not out of love for God, but out of a craving for recognition, to be seen by other people. So the great Baptist Prince of Preachers, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, came up with, with, a, with a story to illustrate this principle about how the human heart is so prone toward virtuous things, but from ulterior motives. It's a story of a gardener and a nobleman and a king. And the gardener produces a giant carrot in his garden. And it's the largest and most beautiful carrot that he's ever produced as a gardener. And so he takes it and he presents the carrot, the gardener does, to the king. And he says to the king, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown. I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. And what the king does is he responds uh, by thanking the, uh, the gardener, and he makes it clear that he's very pleased, so much so that he gives an entire field to the gardener. He says, you can have this large field. It's all yours. Grow more carrots in this field. 
It's my gift to you. And so, so there's a nobleman nearby who overheard this whole thing. And he says to himself, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? And so he took one of his horses, the noble stallion, and he says to the king, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will breed. I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. And the king politely thanked him and then dismissed him. And the nobleman was, was upset, to say the least. He was perplexed. You know, the, you know, the guy who gave him a carrot got a whole field, and I get nothing but a polite thank you. And then the king turns to the nobleman and says this. Here's what just happened. The gardener gave the carrot to me. You gave the horse to yourself. Oftentimes, our acts of virtue, our acts of benevolence, they're more like Nietzschean power plays. You know, Nietzsche talked, you know, Nietzsche, granted, was very cynical about human motives, but he got a lot right. A lot of what he said resonates with some of the things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things Nietzsche said is that, that people, when, when, when people give away charity, they're giving carrots to themselves and horses to themselves because they're doing it for recognition and for leverage, okay? That's a very cynical take on the human condition, and yet true in many cases according to Jesus. So how do we know that our faith is real? How do we know that our virtue is motivated from a good place rather than a self-centered place? Here's one way you can discern, and it's really just reading your own heart and motives. Nobody else can see this like you can. But when you obey, next time you do something for God by doing something for your neighbor, by doing unto your neighbor as you would have done unto yourself, check and and make sure that any admiration you feel from that moment after you've done something virtuous, that the admiration you feel is for God and not for yourself. That you're much more impressed that God could take your crooked heart and, and, and straighten it out to the point where, where you would do something selfless and other-oriented. You know, there's no swag when, when, when the heart is, is driven by the Holy Spirit and, and, and by love and affection for God or like the giver of the carrot, the gardener, out of love and respect for the king. You're giving to the king for his own sake and not for some ulterior motive. You're serving your neighbor for their own sake and not for some ulterior motive or for leverage. There's no swag. There's no, see what I just did? Instead, there's admiration that God could use you and work through you and would choose to work through you to do something good and kind and generous. So there's a group of guys, there's about seven or eight of us, we get together a couple of times a month and, uh, you know, just for mutual encouragement and sharing and diving into the Scripture together and, and that sort of thing. And one particular time, we were going around the room and everybody was expressing what they're thankful to God for. 
And one of the people who's a, a top-level leader in Nashville uh, and a very accomplished person, an outstanding man of virtue in every respect for those who know him. What he thanked God for was the gift of faith. That's just another way of saying, I wouldn't believe if it weren't for God. I wouldn't do anything good or virtuous if it weren't for God. My admiration after my own love and my own good deeds are expressed is not toward myself, but it's toward the God who's transforming me into the likeness of His Son. It's about attribution. If you're attributing your own goodness to God, that's a good sign that the Spirit is motivating you and not something else. So, an honest look at ourselves. But a second thing is to take a hard look at the rule itself. Notice how Jesus, just like Rabbi Hillel, says, this is the law and the prophets. You know, doing unto others is just sort of a a, a remix of, 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 of what Jesus said when somebody asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself, right? This is a remix of that. And, and he says, you know, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. This is the whole law and the prophets. This is it. If you're loving your neighbor in that way, you can be pretty sure that you're keeping all the other laws as well pretty well. So, a couple of comments on this. Number one, Jesus is after something that's more heartfelt than it is mechanical. You know, doing unto others presupposes a heart that is regularly on the lookout for opportunities to make somebody else's day. That's what we all want. That's, what we've, that's the friend that we all want, right? Right? That's how we want it done unto us. We want people in our lives who are looking for opportunities to make our day. And so Jesus says, go and do likewise. That's what the golden rule is. See, but religious moralists will come from a different perspective. Because religious moralists, rather than asking themselves, what's the most good I can do for this person over here? Ask themselves, what's the least good that I can do and still check it off as virtue? You know, Peter comes to Jesus, and I, I think he was very sincere in this. He says, Lord, when somebody offends us, how many times should we forgive them? Up to seven times? And for context, Jesus is doubling plus one what the rabbis taught, because the rabbis said, if somebody sins against you, if somebody injures you or hurts you, forgive them up to three times, and after that, you don't have to forgive them anymore. If you think about it, that's sort of generous too. I mean, how many of us have forgiven the same thing to the same person three times? You know, for, for a lot of us, it's one strike you're out, maybe two on a good day. And then a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and, and says, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? And beneath this are a couple of other questions. Lord, what are the non-negotiables? And, 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 and what, what parts of Scripture are ignorable. Which ones can we just sort of let slip by? What are the limits? That's how the religious moralist approaches virtue. The Pharisees actually had this, this, this code or this book that they called the Mishnah, which was a collection of six 
113 laws that they discerned from Scripture, which sounds pretty generous because when, when God sent Moses down from Sinai, He sent him down with 10. And, and, and the Pharisees have 613, presumably deriving from those 10, one of which would be don't spit on the Sabbath because your saliva may hit the ground and then go into the ground and germinate a seed and grow something, which would be work on the Sabbath. So don't spit on the Sabbath. Like it, it got that granular. You know, and it's the same spirit that Confucius, Hillel, the Stoics, rabbis, and others approached the golden rule. You know, look again at how they they expressed it. It was all in the negative. Do not do to others what you wouldn't wish done to yourself. Do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate, and so on. Whereas Jesus states it all in the positive. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. There's an enthusiasm assumed here. There is a, I can't wait to make somebody's day about this posture that Jesus is calling for. You know, the moralist would look at the command, do not commit adultery, and, and say, well, that means refrain from extramarital sex, no more, no less. Treats the command on technical terms rather than relational terms. But, but Jesus would say, no, no, that's not enough. That's not enough. You shall not commit adultery means if you're single to live an optimistically and hopefully chaste life, seeking and and resting in complete satisfaction in the love of Jesus for you. Because every romance is really ultimately just a pointer to the romance of all romances with a capital R, which is the, the one between Christ and His bride, of which you are a part. And for those who are married, do not commit adultery, Jesus would say, positively means be a completely loving spouse. That's the spirit of the law here completely loving, completely selfless, cherishing them proactively and creatively. The religious moralists would look at the command, you shall not steal, and would interpret it this way. It's not yours, then don't take it. Whereas Jesus would say, yes, but that's not nearly enough. Because it's not only about not taking what doesn't belong to you. It's also about releasing what you're clinging to that you owe elsewhere. Let's talk about your tithes in Malachi and how Malachi the prophet says you are robbing God when you shortchange Him. And don't proactively release your resources to Him at minimum 10%. That is theft. That's passive theft. Or pay a fair wage even when you don't have to. Pay a fair wage. Pay even better than market. Is part of how you obey this command from the spirit of it, you shall not steal. Don't exploit the situation of the poor, turning them into cheap labor because you know they can't get work elsewhere. It's proactive. Because By virtue of being connected to Jesus, we understand that we owe a debt of love to all people, especially those who are disadvantaged, especially those who were born into a position of weakness. He's calling 
his people everywhere to a life of proactive, radical generosity and hospitality. You have a dinner party? Don't just invite the movers and the shakers. Also include the strugglers. The parable of the wedding banquet is all about. It shows us the heart of Christ. You know, you're sitting at the lunch table at school. Don't just try to angle to hang out with the popular kids and the cool kids. Invite the quiet kids, the kids who seem lonely and alone. Proactively seek to make somebody's day. You know, the religious moralists would, would hear the command, you shall not bear false testimony, and they would say it starts and stops with this, don't misrepresent somebody in court. Don't say something untrue in court about somebody else. But Jesus would say that's not nearly enough. It starts with that, but that's not nearly enough because the spirit of the law is to tell the truth in all situations. No more spin, no more obfuscation, no more deception, no more stealing the truth from other people because you think they can't handle the truth or you can't handle them handling the truth. Tell the truth in all situations. And instead of damning somebody through false testimony, things like gossip and slander, catch somebody doing good. Encourage somebody. Put courage into somebody else. Speak words that make somebody else's soul stronger. Or the big one, you shall not murder. The religious moralist would say that just means it starts and ends with not committing the act. But Jesus would say, no, it goes a lot further than that. Forgive when others hurt you. Pursue reconciliation when there's a strain in the relationship. Wherever possible, pursue reconciliation. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. You, know, you say you live by the golden rule. You say you like to organize your life around the golden rule. Really? I mean, this last one is, is an acid test, isn't it? I mean, what do you want when you do somebody wrong? You want forgiveness. You demand it, especially in your household. You demand it. You want people to cut you to some slack. You want people to get on board with the fact that the air is human, and I'm only human after all. Putting up our defenses. We want forgiveness. We're, we're built to, 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 to desire to be in the right. So why wouldn't we grant that to others? It's because we can't. You know, the rabbis, the furthest they could go was to forgive three times Peter. The furthest he could go, ah, I'll try seven times. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, which was an idiom for infinity. That, 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 that the forgiveness that the people of Jesus extend to those who hurt them, to those who offend them, is inexhaustible, because that is how His forgiveness is toward us. It's inexhaustible. Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. How are we doing? And to make it even more challenging, forgiveness is not just tolerating somebody. Tolerance is just thinly veiled hatred. It's, passive, it's just a passive-aggressive way to despise somebody. Golden rule love, by nature, by design, is costly and fiercely proactive. That's what law-keeping means biblically. 
Trust me, there's a release valve at the end of all this. My purpose right now is to make you feel so much pain over how far away you are from this ideal that you're ready to receive the antiseptic that Christ has for you and the cure and the surgery and the scalpel. This was what Mother Teresa had hanging on her wall, and it's from an anonymous source. They don't know exactly who wrote it, but this is what she put up on her wall to inspire her along the lines of the golden rule. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have, and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Heartfelt versus merely mechanical. Fiercely proactive, always costly. That's what love is. Love is costly. It's inconvenient. But there's, a, there's another layer to this, and that, that's, that's about creating belonging. You know, next week, uh, we're going to unpack the, the passage on the narrow gate, and it says this. It's the next two verses after this one. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You know, maybe this is a bit of an echo of what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, when He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father. No one gets into a right relationship with God except through me. And the skeptic in us would would say, well, this is a defeater belief. This this is a a proposition that defeats Christianity, that delegitimizes Christianity for being too narrow-minded, for being too exclusive. Now, this is precisely the reason why I am not religious, because I believe in love. I believe in tolerance. I believe in accepting all people. But you don't. You don't believe that. And the hostility you feel toward religion is proof proof positive of that. But I could go further. It's not just religious conservatives who wrongly exclude people who belong. It is just as much a secular liberal thing. Not too long ago, Nicholas Kristof from the New York Times, a self-avowed secular liberal, called his own bluff and called the bluff of others who think like him. He wrote this. It's very courageous. He said, classic liberalism valued tolerance as defined by Voltaire, who said, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death 
your right to say it. But today, Christoph continues, especially on university campuses, Voltaire is sometimes updated to, I disapprove of what you say, so shut up. We progressives promote all kinds of diversity except ideological diversity. We create liberal echo chambers and hostile environments for conservatives and especially for evangelical Christians. As I see it, we are hypocritical. We welcome people who don't look like us as long as they think like us. You want to be a true progressive? Then get on the narrow path. You want an open mind? Get on the narrow path of Jesus Christ, whose narrow path leads to a wide embrace. Join the movement of Jesus. Yeah, He's exclusive. Weigh the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Him. Yeah, He's exclusive, and so are you. But He's a better kind of exclusive than you are. He's a much better kind of exclusive than you are. The question is, who is it that we exclude? Whether you're a religious conservative or a secular progressive, the people that you exclude are the bad people. And of course, you're on the side of the good people, and the world is separated between the good people and the bad people. And if you're a conservative, the conservatives are the good people and the liberals are the bad people. If you're a liberal, the liberals are the good people and the conservatives are the bad people. And you separate the world that way. You are exclusive. You know, you pretend to be a person who values diversity and tolerance, but like Christoph says, you welcome people who don't look like you as long as they think like you. Take that, conservatives. Take that, liberals. Jesus' exclusivity is a better kind because Jesus, rather than separating the world between the good and the bad, because only He is good. Instead of that, He separates the world between the proud whom God opposes and the humble to whom He gives grace, which makes Christianity the most inclusive movement in the history of the world because the only people who are kept on the outside are cocky people who love the sound of their own name and who admire their own virtue. But if you come to Him humbly, doesn't matter your culture, your color, your gender, your income bracket, your generation, your position on the org chart, whether you're a mover, a shaker, or a struggler, whether you're a popular kid or a quiet kid, there's a place of belonging for you in Jesus, because He gives grace to the humble, which brings me finally and quickly. We have to humbly look at the rule keeper, understanding that there is only one rule keeper, Jesus Christ, who did unto the world what the world refused to do unto Him. Out of love and respect for the King, and because He cherished us, He did unto us what we refused to do unto Him. He gave up the carrot, and He gave up the horse, and the king dismissed Him. 
forsook him so that the king could say to us, with all of our duplicity, with all of our ulterior motives, here is an entire field, daughters and sons. You are heirs of the universe. The meek will inherit the earth. Jesus kept the rule perfectly. He was the completely loving spouse who laid down his life for his bride, who cherished us more than he cherished himself. He owed no debt of love. The only debt Jesus owed was justice and judgment, and yet he so loved the world that he gave. He told the truth in every situation because he was the truth. He forgave fiercely. You know, Oscar Schindler once said that true power is when we have every justification to kill and we don't. Jesus had every justification to finish us off, and He didn't. Instead, He was proactive to love us when we were His enemies, to tear down the dividing wall between heaven and earth, between holiness and sinfulness, and and by virtue of that, between humans and humans through Jesus Christ. He was proactive. He was intent on making our day. He created belonging for us in a world that is, in reality, separated between the proud and the humble. And for all those who are humble, for all who renounce their own righteousness, for all who marvel at God for their own virtue and for the existence thereof, there's a place at His table. You think you live by the golden rule? You don't. But He did. And because He did, now you can. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, keeper of the rule, You owed us nothing. We had zero entitlements, zero leverage, zero meritorious virtue, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to Your cross we cling. Naked we come to You for dress. Helpless we look to You for grace. Foul we to the fountain of Your mercies fly. Wash us, Savior, or we die. For You oppose, You fiercely oppose the proud, and You fiercely give grace to the humble. Grant us humility, we pray.